You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Good morning. As you're, as you're finding your seats, that was, that was good. That was a good greeting time. Usually when we have a packed house, sometimes it just goes on and on and on forever, and we have to work a lot harder at getting you back in your seats. So uh, that was good. Um, as Pete had mentioned, I'm Peter, Peter Zimmer. Uh, been at the church since the beginning. Um, director of family and community, so working with our life groups um, and working with our kids program, our kids ministry volunteers. And, and so if you are new and you're looking for a way to plug in, I'll help you do that. You can find me afterwards. I'd love the chance to meet you and get to talk to you. Um, I hope you guys had a great Christmas. Now that Christmas has come and gone, I hope it was a good time for you. Uh, it's good to be worshiping God with you this morning, this week, um, and getting together and celebrating baptism. It's good to have family visiting from out of town, good to see some, some faces and, and some family uh, faces visiting with us this morning. Um, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity and the privilege that it is to be able to preach God's Word. It's, as Pete had mentioned, it's not something I do professionally. It's not my main position here at the church, but something I'm privileged and honored to do from time to time and have the opportunity to give Pete a, a break from preaching this morning. So we're, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be doing that this morning. So... We're kind of at an interesting time of the year, I, I think, about uh, each, each time during this, this time of the year. We're, we're in between series. Uh, Christmas has come and gone, and uh, our next series coming up next week will kick off through the Psalms that Pete will be leading us through. Um, so I, th- I feel like we're at a time where we're kind of at a natural uh, time of reflection and transition. So that one year is about to end, a new year is about to begin. And Christmas is over, we packed up all the decorations, we begin to, to look ahead and to be starting to make plans for the new year, with, whether it's resolutions, goals, um, I don't know what your thing is, maybe it's a word, having a word for the year, maybe you're anti-resolutions, maybe you're a goal person, I don't, I don't know. But regardless of your style, we are seasonal people, we're rhythmic people. And, um, and so we, we inevitably take times like now, like this time of the year, to stop and to reflect on the past year and to, and to look ahead with anticipation and planning for the next. And so as I was thinking through and preparing for this Sunday and what, uh, what to preach on, um, I wanted to choose a passage that speaks into this time and this kind of acknowledges this rhythm something that meets us where we are, and, and even something that I feel like we need, that, that maybe we, that speaks to us as Holy Cross, kind of into where, where we are at. Um, so there's something that happens, I think, and, and this isn't uh, unique to us, but we tend to celebrate Christmas, we, we tend to celebrate Christmas, and then we just, we put it away and we move right on, basically forgetting the magnitude of what we just celebrated in the coming of Jesus Christ on earth as a man. And um, we spend the month looking ahead to the significance of the gospel, and then we're almost eager to, to move right on and to begin start, start making plans for what productivity book we're going to read next or, or how we're finally going to go to the gym and lose some weight that we've been wanting to. And, and we kind of forget everything we just went on to and kind of look ahead to our ambitions. Um, and if these things, of course, these goals that we have and, and things that we do, they're not bad in and of themselves. But unfortunately, I think what we do is we, we often don't let the truth of the gospel, 
the truth of what we just celebrated in Christmas kind of inform our motivations as we look forward into the new year. And so what I'd like to spend our time on this morning is talking about the grace-motivated life. So in other words, another way that you could title this or think about this is is what it means to think of a Christmas-centered new year. As we head into the new year, how the truth of Christ's coming informs a, a new year. And so I think one of the best places for us to turn uh, to look at this is Romans 12. It's a fairly familiar passage. You might be familiar with it, but Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, and it'll be on behind me as I read it for you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. So this may, like I mentioned, may be a familiar passage for many of you, but here Paul, in a short phrase, answers the question of how we ought to live in light of Christ's coming. What he calls believers in Jesus, too, is being something called a living sacrifice. But to fully understand what he's calling us to, we need to see what he's basing his appeal. So he says, my appeal to you is this, what he's basing that on. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. So, as you know, every time you see the word therefore, we always need to ask what came before that. Because whatever the author is saying afterwards, he's basing on what something he had just said. So sometimes this is just the verse that immediately precedes what he's saying now or the paragraph beforehand. But, um, but in this case, uh, this is the entirety of the book of Romans before this point. So he's, Paul has just spent 11 chapters in Romans beautifully detailing the gospel, all of its doctrine and all of its implication. Paul carefully and logically draws out the story that we celebrate every Sunday that we gather. The story of God's cosmic redemptive plan that he was the creator of all things and his creation was very good. And yet through the sin of Adam and Eve, his good creation was subject to the curse of evil. To the curse of evil. The world uh, that God created became divorced and separated from heaven. There became this necessary separation from the sinful world and the perfect heavenly dwelling place of God. So because of sin, mankind stands in God's wrath. We stand accused and condemned by a righteous God. And so Paul, throughout his letter to the Romans, explains how Jesus coming to earth as a man is the answer to God's promise throughout the Old Testament to save his people and his world from the bondage of sin and evil, and to deliver them from his judgment. So Paul, he uses a beautiful description of Jesus as the second Adam. It's actually a a line we just sang about. Description of Jesus as the second Adam. So this means that he came to do what sinful humankind in the first Adam, in the life uh, bound to original sin from our first human father, Um, He came to do what what we are unable to do. He lived a life perfectly obedient to God, and then he died on a cross, 
uh, to be the sacrifice for our sin. So at the cross, God poured out his, his judgment, his righteous judgment against sin and evil. And Jesus, the perfect man, stood between, in between us and God's judgment. So then after dying and being buried, uh, Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven, proving that he did, in fact, that he was, in fact, God. He did have the power to forgive sins and to conquer evil and had power over death. So in this moment of history, this Christ event of Jesus coming to earth, living and dying and raising, uh, the God's end time, uh, eternal kingdom, broke into history. The kingdom of God's perfect reign for all of eternity breaks into history. So God's sovereign agenda for redeeming a people and a world to live again with him, to live with him as he originally intended, free from sin and death, is initiated in Christ coming. And Paul says that the entry point into this hope is faith in Christ. It's faith in Christ, the second Adam. So what, what this means is that our only hope of being reconciled with God and enjoying life with him in his new creation, a world free from sin for all of eternity, is to see that Christ has something that we don't have, and that's righteousness. Christ has righteousness and we don't have it. So Paul says that if we see that, if we have faith that Christ did something on our behalf that we could not do, please God perfectly, we are credited with his righteous record and joined to him. And this is the term for this is called being joined to Christ, being in Christ. You hear that and see that frequently in the Bible, that we are in Christ. We no longer have membership in the first Adam of sin and death, um, participating in the kingdom of sin, the things of the world, but we're given a new identity in Christ as a part of God's kingdom, God's eventual perfect forever kingdom as we await his return when he judges sin forever and establishes his new creation, living with his people in an earth free from sin as he intended it from the beginning. So that's the story that Paul tells in 1 through 11. That's a really poor flyby. Thanks for being patient with me. Incomplete summary of one of the best, most comprehensive theological documents in all of time. Um, but you could say that Paul, in chapters 1 through 11, before this statement today, gives a comprehensive commentary on what Christmas, Jesus being born as a man, means for all of humanity. And there's one word to describe this that comes up over and over and over again. It's grace. Grace is how you describe this. All of this one-way initiating action from God toward his creation is a movement of grace, meaning that out of his love and goodness, he moves towards his enemies when he didn't have to. His movement to redeem his people from sin and the kingdom of the world um, the kingdom of the world is a movement of grace, of undeserved favor. His movement of bringing his heavenly kingdom into the earth is a movement of grace. So this is the context for our passage today. That if we truly understand this grace, what is the appropriate response? If we internalize and believe and rest in all of that, that case that Paul has made, how are we to live? 
Like we said at the beginning, he calls us to be, his word for this is a living sacrifice. This is what the grace-motivated life looks like, is being a living sacrifice. So for the rest of our time, we're going to draw out what that means to be a living sacrifice, motivated by grace, by looking at the scope of it, the cost of it, and the fruit of it. The scope of the grace-motivated life, the cost of it, and the fruit of it. So first, what is the scope of the grace-motivated life? What's, in, what's included in it? So back when I was a, a paramedic before I started doing this, uh, it was essential for us to know what our scope of practice was. You're probably familiar with what this term means. Um, it's especially pertinent to the medical field. Um, large part of our initial training and, and continuing education had to had to do with knowing and becoming proficient in what our scope of practice was. So we have several nurses in our church, nurse practitioners, other medical uh, personnel. Uh, paramedics are allowed to do some things that nurses can't do and vice versa. Um, there's certain medications we can give, certain skills that we can do and so on, and other ones that, that other fields can do that we can't. And so when a paramedic shows up at your house, uh, you can expect them to do everything they can within their scope of practice. Uh, if they do something outside of their scope of practice, they'll probably lose their certification and get fired, right, if they do something outside of that. Um, yet, if they don't do everything they can do and it was needed, they would be negligent and would also lose their cert and get fired. So in this sense, the idea of a scope is, uh, is essentially means the boundary for what I can legally do and what I can't. And this is kind of the, the world that we live in, a world of, of boundaries. We live in a world of contracts and limited warranties. We all have budgets, uh, limits on our financial capabilities, our limits on other resources like our time, our energy, and our emotional energy, what we can give to things and people. And because of this, we're conditioned out of necessity to be measured about what we offer, what we offer others and what we give away. And this way of thinking tends to be oftentimes the way that we see our relationship with God, the way that we uh, view Him, view our relationship with Him, and how we view worship and serving and going to church. We often live with this dualism in our lives, thinking that our weekday lives, our work, our money choices, our use of resources, our goals, our ambitions, or the way we view our body or other people, that it's neutral and not related to our faith. Um, that the things related to our faith are the deeds or the actions like going to church. Uh, or we see worship only as singing songs on, on Sunday. Or maybe we consider people in full-time ministry as the only ones who are called to give their lives fully to serving God. But Paul, he breaks that dualism down. His audience that he's appealing to, the people that he's calling to be a living sacrifice, is all the people in the church claiming faith in Christ. So Paul has in view that the scope of our um, the scope of our response to God's grace is our entire lives. There's no dualism or boundary in our worship of God. I should say 
I should make a distinction there that there, there are boundaries as far as what's acceptable worship to God and what's not. What I mean is that we, there's no part of our life that is not under his sovereignty and, and should be devoted to him in, in reverence and in worship. So our entire lives are to be given in worship to God, and there's two clear reasons that he gives for this. First, the nature of grace, what grace is, and the second, the extent of God's sovereignty. So this appeal to us is saturated in really significant pregnant language. Um, One of the most important phrases that Paul uses here says that the mercies of God are the basis of his appeal. So he appeals to us by the mercies of God. So when Paul calls us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable, he's pointing to our state of being alive in Christ, which is a status only possible by his mercy. In using this specific language, he's referring to the history of Israel's sacrificial system of, of, um, of worshiping God and seeking his mercy and his forgiveness for sin. However, now that Jesus had come as the final sacrifice, God's mercy is graciously given to sinners. So those that have faith in Christ's work have had their sins put to death with Christ and are raised to life with him and now live with that daily reality that they have been gifted with and cloaked in the life, which is the only way that they can be considered holy and acceptable to God. So here's what this means. We didn't do anything. We didn't do anything to earn this or to get this. We offer God nothing to accept us. It is solely due to his mercy shown to us by accepting us on the merits of Christ. So here's why this is important for us. If we contributed nothing to being accepted by God, then there's nothing he can't require of us. In other words, we have no bargaining chip with God. See, if we brought something to the table, we could, uh, we could negotiate with God and we could say, I don't want to give this over to you. And we'd, we could potentially have a right to say that because this is mine. This is something I've earned and this is separate from what you've given me. So we can kind of create this negotiation with God. But if we've been bought and brought into life entirely as a gift, then the entirety of our new life is truly His. So Paul is saying that because of the nature of grace, by the mercies of God, it's right and fitting that we give then 100% of ourselves uh, to him in worship. So because of the nature of grace and our utter dependence on God's mercy, the scope of our response to him is our entire lives. And the second reason this is true is because Paul reminds us that God is sovereign over everything in his creation. So in, in these couple of verses, he really he brings in four big categories in these two verses. He mentions our bodies, our spiritual worship, so something kind of like outside the world, something transcendent, worshiping God, the supernatural, the world, the way of the world, and the will of God, like kind of different realms. 
And so this calls attention to the scope of God's reign and redemptive work. So when he says, do not be conformed to the world, he's not talking about the physical earth. He's talking about the current age of a world whose workings is saturated with sin. So he's highlighting a contrast between the current way the world works and all of its relationships and systems and ways of, of doing life with the way of God, what his will is. So we see these two different areas, the way of God and the way of the world. And he's saying that the kingdom of heaven, where the will of God is, all that is good and perfect and right is in opposition to the way of the world. But his kingdom and his way isn't simply just a spiritual reality. God created a physical world and physical bodies, and it was good. So when he created that, it was good. Jesus came as a physical body, and he bodily rose from the dead. So very closely tied up in our hope as Christians is the fact that God's end-time plan and promise for his people is new bodies on a new earth where the way of the world will be replaced by the perfect will of God. So God's purpose in sending Jesus to redeem people, body and all, is part of his plan to redeem the entirety of creation and way of life. So it's more than just a spiritual reality. It's a comprehensive reality of all of matter and all of life and all of the systems is, is what God is, is over and is redeeming. So therefore, there isn't a category of, of strictly spiritual actions. There's not a dualism that exists saying that, that life, bodily life on earth, is, is disconnected from spiritual things like worship. Paul is reminding us that the scope of the grace-motivated life includes every part of our being, including our physical bodies. And that every part of ourselves is to be devoted to God's purposes and wills in the world. So God is sovereign over every part of his creation, and he is redeeming it in its entirety. We are then called to live our entire lives in all facets of our lives, daily motivated by his grace among a world that is at odds with his will. So this is what it means to truly worship him. To be in Christ and living uh, in, his, in his will. Our worship isn't reduced to a small set of religious or spiritual actions, but is a life lived in light of grace, which is radically different than the way of the world. So inevitably, as, as we consider how all-encompassing the scope of a grace-motivated life is, we begin to feel the cost of our obedience. We can't get around the word sacrifice here in the passage. It's central to it, to what he's calling us to. There's no way to massage the text or, or do some gymnastics with it or study the word to make it mean something it doesn't mean. There's pain and loss involved in the grace motivated life. And this brings up the great paradox of the gospel, one of the great paradoxes of the gospel, which says that on one hand, the gospel of grace costs us absolutely nothing, and on the other hand, it costs us everything. And this is really important to get because there's an order here. So at the, at the heart of Paul's theology of the gospel is an instantaneous change that happens to our standing before God. 
It's called, you've maybe heard of it referred to before as our justification. So at the core of putting our faith in Jesus is understanding that a great substitution has happened. He took our sin upon ourselves, and in exchange, we take his righteousness. So our status has changed. This is why it's grace, because it cost him everything and us nothing. We got something we didn't deserve. He died so that we could live. There's absolutely nothing we had to do first. We simply need to see our helpless state and Jesus' provision for us, and we're granted the ability to stand before a holy God. We're justified to be in his presence because of what Christ had done, not what we had done. So Paul makes this clear earlier in chapter 5 when he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were enemies with God because of sin. So grace means that our salvation costs us nothing. And yet here's the thing. Even though our status with God had changed and we were given new life and given the Holy Spirit to live in us, nothing else changed. We're still sinners. We're still steeped in the world and tied to its ways. Our past and our habits and our brokenness still remains living in it. We have a new identity still saturated and pinned to this flesh. So when we enter God's kingdom by faith in his grace, we begin the slow and steady process of being gradually transformed by his grace into conformity with him and his will. And so this is, in comparison with justification, this is another theological word called our sanctification, as we are grown into being conformed from the way of the world into God's will in the likeness of Christ. So what does this entail? Like we mentioned earlier, God's will and ways are at odds with the way of the world. And so we begin to let go of all the ways we are tied to things that are opposed to God's will. Grace leads us away from selfishness to selflessness. It leads us to continually sacrifice our pride and our desire to trust ourselves and to live to serve ourselves in exchange for submitting to God, in humility, loving others with all that we have. And this is a painful process. Has anyone tried to give up their comforts and their preferences for others? It's not easy. It's hard to give up our comforts. It's hard to look into our hearts and to see the ugliness that's, that's really there, that's not in accord with God's will. It's hard to see the areas where we don't really trust God and trust the truth of who he is. The Bible, in other places throughout the Bible, it refers to this process that we're on as Christians as as dying to sin, more sacrificial and, and painful language, putting to death our flesh. The gospel news costs us nothing, but the gospel call costs us our entire old way of life as we live daily more and more in our new identity by grace. So we talked about the scope of the grace-motivated life, the cost of the grace-motivated life, and now we'll finish with the fruit of the grace-motivated life. 
So a couple of weeks ago, actually, as we were working on the bathroom, remodeling that, Pete made an observation about me that I had been um, using the phrase cost-benefit analysis a lot. I think, I don't know if you ever have this time where like, you just latch onto a phrase or a concept and, and you just keep using it over and over because it just seems to be the first thing on your mind that suits the circumstance. Well, apparently, I've kind of been doing that uh, for a little while. So it's an, it's an economic term, of course, um, but it's really... Uh, a really applicable phrase for all of life. Um, it's kind of the way we do life. It's kind of the way we engage all of life around us. We're constantly assessing whether what we get out of something will be worth the time or the effort. We tend to hope that when we give up something, that we'll get something in return. that will get something worthwhile or meaningful for the effort that we put forth. So to use the example of fruit, as, a, as we talk about the fruit of the grace-motivated life, um, think about the fruit as the reward or the return on the gardener's cost of time and effort, cultivating the soil, watering, feeding uh, the plant. Um, the fruit is, the, is what you gain in return. Well, just so we're told by Paul that there is fruit or benefit to the grace-motivated life. But it's important to note again the order of our sacrificing. So again, we don't get the benefit of God's grace because we've sacrificed something um, first. Our sacrificing is a response to God's cost on our behalf. So in one sense, we've already gotten 100% of the benefits of grace, the fruit of grace. We've been given a relationship with God and the certainty of living forever with Him. But on the other hand, we're told that we benefit greatly in our life now in the world as we pour ourselves out in worship to God as a living sacrifice. What is this benefit that we're promised for worshiping God It's knowing the will of God. It's knowing more clearly His will. Now, this can be easily misunderstood when we think about and talk about and contemplate uh, the will of God and that idea. Um, I think it opens up a problem that exists in in many of us in our way of thinking. Um, And here's the problem it uncovers, that our view of God often doesn't match our expectations from God. So we often have this super low view of God, meaning that functionally we forget points one and two, his, that God is sovereign over all things, that he's worthy of every part of our lives, every part of our entire lives and worship to him. And yet we can often obsess over trying to find out what his will is for us. We tend to spend much more time and thought life wanting God to reveal to us these super specific special instructions for why we want, uh, what, for what we want in our life without spending much time meditating on Him and seeking to truly know Him and love Him for who He is. And the solution for this problem is a proper understanding of grace. When we truly grasp all that we've been talking about, about the scandalous nature of God's grace given to us in Christ Jesus, we cannot help but be enamored with and awed by who God is and how good He is to us. So when we truly see Him as the giver 
of grace, of this grace, we can't help but want more and more and more of him. This is what is meant by having a renewed mind. As we meditate on God's grace and test it out, meaning prove it, test drive it, think of like cars going to the proving ground, they're getting tested to show that they work, that we practice believing it and relying on it and find it to be true, to find it be to find it to be true and and worthwhile to believe in. We become less obsessed with what we get from God and more excited about getting Him as an end in and of itself. He becomes to us, as we think about the grace we've been given, so beautiful to us that we can't help but desire to live, to glorify Him, and to trust His ways. So then when we say that the fruit of sacrificing our old ways and old flesh is knowing the will of God, it's not about finding out what job we should, what we should, what job we should take next or who we should marry or some of these little uh, details or, or bigger details and on and on and on. It's about knowing intimately what is good and perfect and acceptable by connecting with God himself. So someone I listen to a lot, um, Tim Keller. So he, he often says, I've heard him say on, on numerous occasions, um, that when he's not very well prepared for a sermon, he, he only quotes from C.S. Lewis rather than a variety of sources. And so, yeah, he can just like spit out C.S. Lewis, right? So, and he says the reason for this is because he studied him more than anyone else. He knows him. He's read him so much that he's become intimately aware and saturated with how C.S. Lewis thinks to some degree. He thinks like him. And so it just flows from him. He knows the mind of him and it just flows out of him. Now this is somewhat of an example of what it what it means for us to discern the will of God by being in communion with God and going to him and being connected to him. His grace drives us to desire intimacy with him. As we worship him, we become more aware of his ways in his kingdom and our desires and our wills begin to conform to His. This is very different than finding out the secret small-scale answers that we want from Him. And this moves us toward one of the most significant benefits of the grace-motivated life of worship, that we have the incomparable freedom that comes from the security that grace provides. We are free to make the decisions of our life and the the decisions of our life and, and live our lives with the wisdom and the discernment that comes from being connected to the mind of Christ, yet without the fear of failure. We can engage in every part of our life with the best wisdom we have in Christ and know that no matter what happens, our status with God is not shaken that he's sovereign over it all, and that we are secure in him in Christ. So in our immaturity, we may and will absolutely make foolish decisions that appear uh, to have been the wrong choice. Yet we know that we will be okay because by grace, we are secure in our relationship with God. He will never leave us and promises he will work all things together for our good. So the applications of this are far more than simply for discerning daily life decisions. It means that we really will be okay 
when we give up our comforts and when we give up our comforts in our life and the things that we're clinging to. In fact, we'll be more than okay. We'll get more of God. The more that we run to him, the more we sacrifice of our old way of life and run to God in grace, we get the best thing we could ever hope for. That's intimacy with him and closeness with him. And because that's where we become transformed more and more into his image and experience life as he truly meant it to be. So when we find intimacy with God, it completely transforms our lives. It means that maybe you could actually hold babies on a Sunday with your wife in the nursery and and be okay. You could sacrifice that and have the trust that, that you'll be okay. It means that you really could serve in one service and attend another. That if you hold on to your comforts and, and give up your time, you actually will be okay. You'll be more than okay. Right? We'll pr- pursue him. Grace changes everything. It means that, it means that uh, you, you don't really have to find your identity through your resolutions to change. As you go into a new year and you make resolutions, you have the freedom not to find your identity in what you can accomplish and produce through your goals. Grace changes everything. So as we look ahead to the new year, I want to encourage you and appeal to you by the mercies of God to let the grace you find in Christ drive you to pouring yourself out in worship to him with all of your life. We may find that uh, many of our goals and our ambitions uh, for the year, they may not change but our motivation, our expectation of them, what, they ex- what we expect them to provide for us, our reason for doing them, our purpose in them, our joy in them, most certainly will change when we sit and rest in God's grace. So put your faith with me in him who lived to be a sacrifice for you that you may have life. Let's pray.